little bit. <clears throat> okay. I hardly know where to start because I missed a whole week, which means I have missed a whole week of getting to go through information in, in that chapter two, which was loaded with some hot topics, right? Um, I, I know you all watched the video, which is awesome because you got a chance to see Kate in, for, for um, a longer period of time, maybe even got a chance to discuss it afterwards, which is great for you. Um, so for that, I'm happy. But what I have decided um, is that for the sake of two things, number one, helping to guide you in, in, along in the processes of learning inductive process, I want to go back into chapters one and two this morning to focus our attention on one thing, and that is the Holy Spirit. Because um, I was talking with um, another student who is beginning to teach, and she was saying to me, you know, tell me the most important things I need to know as a teacher. What are some of the most important things I need to know as a student of, your, of the word in, in this process? And one of the, th- the subjects that came up as we were in our discussion was the fact that it does not matter what study you do, any study you, when you open up the word of God, there are three personages who are of significant importance for us to pay attention to. Can you guess who that would be? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Above all else, if we are not gaining a better doctrinal and, and spiritual connection and relationship and understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ and of God the Father and of the Holy Spirit's work, then we are really missing the boat on everything. What else is there if we're not gaining that deeper relationship with him, right? So the way that you, one of the ways that you go about doing that, besides the fellowship that you get with the Spirit and with God the Father and the Son through prayer, besides the times of of encouragement that you get by just sitting and drinking it in when someone's preaching a, a, a lesson verbally. The, the one proactive way that you and I gain, though, this intimacy with God is through what we're doing right here in this, this processes of inductive study. And, you know, can anybody in here give testimonies about how the process of doing this work has really made your intimacy with God deeper? Have you had moments when you're just sitting at your computer doing your homework and you're just bawling because all of a sudden the Spirit has just overwhelmed you with a new truth or an insight and you're, you're either so delighted because God finally showed you something that you've been dying to understand for a long time or maybe God has pierced your heart and you felt a repentance about something that you now recognize that you've been doing that you shouldn't be or that you're not doing something you should be? Is there anybody that has had that experience in here or is it just me? (laughs) Okay, you're all laughing. That must mean, yes, you've all had that experience. I, I pray that this is true. Now, for me personally, when I have had this occur. It is usually when I have done something as simple as made a list on the personage of either God the Father, Jesus the Son, or or the Holy Spirit. So I want to kind of walk us through one of those this morning, which is going to be, as you see, the Holy Spirit. And I want to back up one of the great values also of doing this, besides building your intimacy with him, is building your doctrines of him also. It helps to establish some real points of truth about what you know is true about 
that that um, person of the the Trinity, what their work is, what their, you know, we know it is God in one, and it is a mystery to try to even begin to understand it fully. However, we also know that although they are they are all three God, they they each have a designed office as well. Each of them has a specific work or assigned role, although sometimes they blend over, obviously, because they're all God. But there is a distinction of the work of the Holy Spirit, and we want to begin to try to identify that little bit this morning. We are going to work on Jesus a lot as we keep moving forward. But I want to back up, and because the opening of this book is so um, powerful in what it teaches us about the Holy Spirit. I want to back up and just have you help me develop a list this morning. And it does not have to be completely extensive. And I'm not going to write every point up here. But I want to show you how to develop a list on on a subject. In this case, it's the Holy Spirit. How you would write it out and mark it so that you can see what an inductive Bible study list looks like. Okay? Because for some of you haven't seen that in a long time. Some of you have never seen it. I don't, I'm not sure. But let's go back into Acts chapter 1 and start there first. <clears throat> what do we learn about the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1? If you're going to make a list, what would you tell us? Okay. He, it is, oh, why didn't that one? Okay. All right. Okay, so we're going to say he is what the Father promised, right? Now, what verse are you in? Okay, 1-4. And when the Father made this promise, did he give us an indication as how he gave us this promise? Through whom did he give that promise? Or, or is there knowledge that you have about how that promise was given? Okay, we, secondarily, he heard it through Jesus. He is Jesus, I'm going to put in parentheses the word also because it's an implication there. Jesus also taught or, or also, let's see, let me put it this way. They also heard from Jesus about the Holy Spirit, right? They also heard from Jesus about the promise, right? He says, they heard of this promise from Jesus. That's in verse 4, 1, 4, right? When the Father made the promise about the Holy Spirit, how did he do that? Think back on some of the, the studies that we've done. Have you seen any promises of the Holy Spirit? Thank you. James, you get a star for the morning. It, do you remember in, in Ezekiel? What did Ezekiel tell us about the Holy Spirit? That's right. Yes, he said he would pour it out on, on his people in that day, right? And he poured it out on the house of David. Now tell me when, um, was, is there any other significant marker from when, for when God would do it or another event that was going to be tied to that? A new covenant. That this would be the sign of a new covenant. Now, when the, um, Peter begins to explain about the Holy Spirit, does he go back and also mention a prophet? 
Yes, so Joel is mentioned. So there's another reference, although we have experienced because we just came out of Ezekiel, we know about that promise of the Holy Spirit coming, that it's going to come in a day when God is going to give a new covenant to Israel, not a covenant like the old one, but something that's new. And he said that um, then Joel also had spoke of that. So this Holy Spirit is what the Father promised, so you can consider that through the prophets, right, by the prophets. And they also heard from Jesus about the promise of the Holy Spirit. This writer, Luke, as a matter of fact, if you go back into Luke, do you recall where Luke, in the book of Luke he records uh, a message about the promise that Jesus made to them about the Holy Spirit? Where did this promise get recorded? Do you remember where they were at when Jesus spoke to them about the promise of the Holy Spirit? In the upper room, that's exactly right, at the, at the Last Supper. He says, I'm, I'm about to leave, but he said, don't worry, I am going to send you another helper. Also, yes. Yes, that is the big one. But Luke, because we're following Luke in the book of Acts, I'm just trying to follow the continuity of the same author. But in Luke, he does it as well, right? He speaks of this time when... I think it's really interesting to me how in Acts, he says in Jesus, they heard about this from Jesus. And he's actually even referring back to his own first writing, Luke's first writing, when he records Jesus making this promise to them about this coming Holy Spirit. All right? So um, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, he says when you receive the, pro- the, the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen? Yes, the promise is the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put that down first, okay? Just to clarify, because there's a, it's what was promised. And what was promised? That Holy Spirit, correct? So I'm going to... Well, that is weird. Why are my markers? I do this every single week. I promise. I don't do it on purpose. Okay. (laughs) All right. The promised, what was promised by the Father is the Holy Spirit. So that, to me, is foundational. And what, what the reason I want to try to highlight that in my list making in, in a significant way is so that anytime I flip back and forth to what is promised, what you're talking about then is the Holy Spirit, right? And he says, when you receive the Spirit, what's going to happen? Yeah. You will receive power. That's in one eight. This was 5. And you will be my witnesses. This is really a foundational truth for what we're studying in the book of Acts because from this point forward then, after the chapter 1, we begin to see the actuality of this. Do we not? Have we not already begun to see? What was the first thing that happened in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell? They began to speak in tongues. And what, were they, what kind of tongues was it? And what were they speaking? They were actually speaking languages that were known in the day, and they were speaking of the wonder, wonders uh, uh, of mighty acts of, thank you, God, the mighty acts of God. Thank you, I had to get the wording down. Okay, so you will be my witnesses. So you can see then just from this particular place where we're at even on this list, although it's very short, we're already seeing that 
one of the distinctive purposes of the Holy Spirit, Spirit then is to empower people to witness, right? And therefore, when you see powerful witnessing going on in the world around you, what you can know then is that there is a power behind it, which is what? The Spirit of God, right? Okay, there are going to be witnesses now where? Just by remembrance, where are the places that they are going to be witnesses? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world, right? And we, we talked about the first week that Judea and Samaria are just describing the northern and southern tribes of Israel, correct? The reason that he, they distinguished them is because there was still this split between these two tribes, which in Ezekiel we learn what's God going to do in that day when he gives Israel the spirit. He's going to take the two sticks and do what? Make them one in his hand, remember? So he's going to reunite northern and southern Israel and make them one in his hand. I love that, that, that we get to go back and remember some of the things that we learned in our last, our last um, study. Okay, so this is Acts chapter 1. We're going to move on to Acts 2, even though there's probably additional things. Let's just move on to Acts 2 and say, what else have we learned about the Holy Spirit? The first thing that we learn in chapter 4 is what happens. The promise has been made, and now what happens? Okay, so they were filled. Okay, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. When? On Pentecost. Whoops. Got to learn how to spell. All right, what was the identifying marker of that time frame called to us in chapter 1? Just because we want to kind of note that also. It's another one of those little things that it's helpful to um, learn what these phrases mean. Because anytime you're dropping into uh, scripture, you want to know what does that mean? When will God pour out his spirit according to chapter 2? In the last days. And then he speaks of it uh, again, he says in verse 18, and in those days, what days? The last days, he is going to then give us his spirit. So the spirit, they were going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was in the last days. So what does that tell you about the times that we are living in right now? What are they called? The last days. So that's important for you to know. Now, do not confuse that with the time of the end. Because that is also distinctive if you're doing any kind of eschatology study. But the last days began then at the, at the time of the cross, or even, even before, maybe even the time of Jesus' appearance on the earth and the beginning of his public ministry. He says, and in those last days, he, he presented his son then in those last days. We see also in other places. Mm-hmm. Right. Residing in them and with that power. That's right. And, and then we're seeing that, um, you know, like the disciples were believers, but they didn't have it. Not yet. Not That's yet. right. And then we're going to see later, so if we want to really understand that it, there's a transition going on before it's automatic. That's exactly right. It's a good reminder that you brought that up because it is important. One of the things that we talked about in Lesson 1 uh, where we looked at Matthias, the choosing of Matthias, remember? And we said, what was the one thing that they did in order to choose Matthias that's, that's Old Testament? 
the casting of lots. That was still one of the Old Testament principles of, that they did in the, in, uh, before the coming of the Holy Spirit in order to find out what the will of God is. But now in the New Covenant, how do we find out what the will of God is? Through the Holy Spirit and the written word that we now have for us. So you're right. It is a transitional time. And to keep that in mind throughout the whole book, actually. Now, certainly as we progress through the book and as the years roll by, we get more and more into what we understand the church age to be, you know, as established. But there are going to be many markers along the way as we move through these first chapters that we are seeing kind of an interim time between the two. And so some of the things that are stated sound strange to us. And I do think that it's really important that you keep that in mind, that the reason it's kind of a a weird twist on, well, how come they just didn't do this? Or how come they said it that way? Or what was it that they meant by this? You have to say, what is context? This is, what time are we in history concerning the church? It's just being birthed. It's something brand new. And there's going to be an interim time, which is the book of Acts, how the church has begun to be birthed and how it is begun, uh, going to be, begun to be established. And God is going to do some pretty supernatural things. Have you not seen that already? What have you seen concerning signs, wonders, miracles, right? How they are used... Would you say that that the signs and miracles that we've been seeing so far seem to be done in a really profound, overt way? And what would you say the purpose of them has been? Okay. In one instant, it was to show that the Holy Spirit came. What about this week's work where we looked at the lame man being healed? There you go. Do you guys remember last week? When, I know I wasn't here to teach it, but I sent out in your... Did y'all read your charts that I sent out? <laughs> did you read them? Okay, and in John chapter 3, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And one of the things that Nicodemus says about Jesus is what? We know that you are a teacher come from God because what? The signs that you're doing, unless God be with him. That's right. So the signs were actual validation or confirming or evidence or proof, whatever you want to call it, that God is with that person when a supernatural thing occurs. Now, certainly there can be false supernatural things happening, and that's a whole other subject. But in the context of what we're talking about, the birthing of the church and using the name of Jesus himself, which is what we see with the with uh, chapter uh, 3 and 4, we see that what God does is he does something supernatural in order to confirm that when a man was was healed in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Nazarene, that that shows that God is with him. It's the same thing as what happened in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes in and says, look, we know that you've got to be a man from God because of the, the things that you do. No one could do these signs, these things, except that God be with him. So that is a standard under yes. Uh huh. Yes, we did. Uh huh. Yes. 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 In between is that little that little interim time. <laughs> 
a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Thank you. Wow. See? See, that's what you do when you've done it a long time. You can go, oh, I remember we did this before. What study was that in? And you go look through all your notes. It's awesome. Yes. So I do it all the time. Exactly. Okay. Okay, so they were filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. It is called the last days. And he says, in those days, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, right? He will will pour out his spirit. All right, now that is in verse 18. So I'm going to put a big old Holy Spirit symbol here just to catch your eye, that he will pour out his spirit in those last days, right? On, and he says then, as a result then, because he's going to pour out his spirit, what? What does he say in verse 21 about this? That's right. So what do you conclude from that statement? That those, is there a connection then between the fact that he's going to pour out his spirit and, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? What, what does that show you then as a connection between the subject of salvation and the subject of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah. That anyone who's saved has the Holy Spirit. This is really a profound doctrine that I wanted to point out to you this morning because I do think that there are, there are false teachings and there are false denominational teachings that, sh- that talk about the falling of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is a subject that's going to start to come up more and more. I do want you to pay attention to that word filled. They were filled up with the Holy Spirit. And I think that we need to be careful when we get there, and we'll do it together, but we want to distinguish between what it means to be justified, as in filled up with the Spirit, and in God's sanctification work when he fills us up. Okay, because there's a distinction of that, and it's demonstrated, but the word filling is still the same thing. It's just like the word baptized is, is the same word, but sometimes the baptism means water baptism. Sometimes it means what? Holy Spirit baptism. In this case, he's saying about the promise of the Father, it's the Holy Spirit. That baptism, he says, many days from now, not many days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, correct? Now, I want you to keep that in mind, and I want us to go down then, and I want you to look then in verse 38. You're in the same subject or same flow of thought, correct? How should your mindset be when you read the word baptized at this point, if starting in chapter 1 and following through in chapter 2? Two, the, the subject of baptism is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Have they switched teaching? Have they switched to water baptism anywhere in here? Other than making a contrast at the opening between the baptism of John, yeah, there was that baptism, but then he says, but this baptism is going to be by the Holy Spirit, correct? Yes. Well, this is my question. I want you to look at this. Look at the flow of thought here. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, correct? Earlier in the the chapter, he says in chapter 1, um, for John baptized with water, 1-5, follow it back. He says, you, John baptized with water, but... 
Now he says, but you will be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. Now, once you move beyond that, does he ever bring up water baptism again? Does he ever go on to expound on that sacrament that we do of baptism as an identifying thing? Remember, we looked up the word for baptism and identified it that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is distinguished from the water baptism in that water baptism is like a dipping. It's a cleansing. It's a refreshing. It's, it's symbolic. We know that. But baptism of the Holy Spirit is that one that pickles you, right? It's a transformation of your life, correct? That there's something brand new that God has made you into. And what we see then as evidence of that is At the end of it, what do we see the people doing after they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit? What has happened to their life and their community? It's totally transformed. We saw in chapter 2, it talked about um, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, right? And And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders. What kind of baptism do you think they've had? Holy Spirit baptism. It's a transformation kind of of a baptism. So if you stay in, remember, context rules for interpretation. This is one of those times when you've really got to adhere to that principle. Immediate context rules for interpretation. What is the author's purpose? What is he teaching? Has he switched from this Holy Spirit baptism? Has he switched and started teaching anything on water baptism in here? Have you seen it brought up? Does he clarify it or change it for you in any way? Not yet. He has not. So in chapter 2, then, what happens is when you keep moving on and you've, you've laid a foundation of understanding that the, what was promised is the Holy Spirit, correct? And that, it's, that you are being promised to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now we see they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, that Holy Spirit. Now they are filled with the Holy Spirit which is that baptism that, hold on, hang on, just hang on, because you promise you you're going to love this, as long as you're patient. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, Where does he say not many days from now? Uh, Verse 5, right? I want to get the reference on here. 1-5, baptized, not many days from now. You know, it's just so easy for our mind to make the jump to water baptism because that's what we always think about. It's the visual expression of something that's happening internally. And because it's what we can see, it's what we automatically tend to go to. But in, in, exactly, in it's tradition. And, there's, and certainly we know that, that water baptism is a valid thing to do. Jesus did, did it. He affirmed it. We see it taught in here. And we do see times where they go to the water and there's water baptism demonstrated to us. Would you say, though, in the upper room there was water baptism? No, but when they were baptized, it was with what? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit fell upon it. We get a full description of this baptism, right? Okay. Well, I think one five is it says, for John baptized with water, but. But, and there's your contrast, exactly. Maybe, maybe. But here's, let me show you some. Let's go to verse, um, so in 21. 18, he will pour out his spirit. He says, everyone, 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is talking about salvation, not, not something that you do externally to show that you've been saved, but rather this is actually salvation, right, which is the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 21. So again, that is, will be saved is still linked with the pouring out of his spirit, and that therefore you will be saved. And then he says in verse um, 33, when Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Go down to that verse with me, and let's read that together. Um, This is chapter 2, verse 33. You all there? Okay. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, who received it? Jesus received it. Isn't that interesting? Once he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Now, when did he get exalted to the right hand of the Father? At the ascension. So this is after he commanded the apostles, go and wait for what I'm promising you. I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When Jesus then ascended to the right hand of the Father, and it says, and when he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and having received from the Father the Holy Spirit, now the uh, the Father gives to the Son the Spirit. And what does he do with the Spirit? He pours it forth on this which you now see. Correct? So let's write that down. Because that's pretty, that's, I don't know if you've ever looked at it that carefully before, but isn't that interesting that it's kind of like in Daniel. Do you remember in Daniel where uh, the, the Son of Man approaches the Father, the Ancient of Days, and he hands to him basically the, the, um, the deed to the earth, right? And it, and it shows this picture of this, does Jesus as God already own the earth? Yes. And yet God hands him this deed of God, contract that he will be the king of the earth, that one day God will send him, he will rule and reign upon the earth, and he gives him basically that, that scepter, right? And so here we see another time where this is happening. We're seeing some distinguishing markers of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, And then the Father gives to him the Holy Spirit, and he pours out the Holy Spirit on us. And that is what you now see. Isn't that cool? I loved that when I looked at that more carefully. So I'm going to put this up here. When Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father, Jesus received the Spirit. From the Father, by the way. I'm going to put that on here. From the Father. The promised Holy Spirit. Yes, go ahead, ask your question. He's saying that he's saying that they are to go and wait until he gives them that Holy Spirit. Yes. Well, he still speaks through the Holy Spirit. Yes. See, this is why I was saying earlier that 
in one hand, we know Jesus possesses all things that the Father possesses. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. We can go back and relearn that Trinity unity that is there, that he is fully God, but yet he is also fully the man God who has a distinguished role. And so what I'm saying to you is Acts is actually giving us some really good defining or distinguishing um, roles of each of the three entities that we know of, the Trinity, who is the God three in one. In this moment, what we are seeing here is God the Father is the possessor of that spirit. And as God the Father who sits on the throne, Jesus who sits at his right hand is given that authority of the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit through Jesus, which I think is going to become more significant later. How do you get the spirit? Through Jesus and only through Jesus, right? Because what was the promise of the new covenant? Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in Ezekiel, we learned that in that day, I will have a, make a new covenant with you. I'll remove your heart of stone, which was a, 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 the law covenant. He said, I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my precepts and my statutes. We know that that promise of that new covenant, also in Galatians, says that it's the seed he promised to Abraham, and that seed is who, according to Galatians 3.16? That seed is Christ. So it's really awesome when you see, on the one hand, Jesus continually talks about, I am God. I, re- I looked back last night at a few passages where Jesus was um, being identified as the author of life, because I got off on that tangent about the author of life. And um, in there, I saw one of the references where when Jesus was in the garden about to be um, uh, identified, betrayed by Judas, and the, um, the Roman soldiers were coming to approach him, and they're saying, they were asking him if he was the one that they were looking for, and he says, I am he. And in that statement is the great I am statement, right? And what happened, what did the guards do when they heard him say, I am he? They fell down. There was an acknowledgement by those guards even who were Romans that what what he was saying is, I am God. I thought that was really cool. Right. I am he. I am. am. Exactly. That's exactly right. Whole other teaching. But yes, in in our study in um, John, we learned that that I am he is actually I am. And it's the I am statement he said to Mo, um, Moses when Moses said, who shall I say to the people who has sent me? And they say, you tell them the I am sent you. The I am, I am God, the, the self-existent one. Okay, so when Jesus was exalted, Jesus, so what I'm showing you here is a doctrine. And it's the uniqueness of the role between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father had the authority. He gave it to the Son who sits at the right hand. What is the right hand, by the way, of God signifying? Power, strength, authority, rulership, right? So he's at the right hand of God, the power of God. God gave him the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus poured out the Spirit, okay? He has poured forth. So here's, he's poured it forth. Jesus received it. It was the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured it forth. Now he says, and you, by the way, which you now see all this. 
This is what you're seeing and hearing here in chapter 2, right? The, the wind, the fires of tongue, the speaking in tongues, this supernatural thing that was taking place. This is what they were seeing was the pouring out of this spirit. Who is the spirit? It was the promise. What is the promise? It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is that you will uh, be baptized with that Holy Spirit, that baptism, okay? And he says, so now, therefore, he concludes, then he f- dropped down to uh, 38, so Jesus is going to then, is pours this out. He, says, uh, the, he, he received it from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. And then you go down to 38. Um, and Peter said to them, therefore, now what are they to do? Repent. And then if they repent, what will happen? You will be baptized. What are you going to be baptized with? Water? No. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It doesn't sound like it's something that's going to be happen to them, but something that they're supposed to choose to do. No. What I'm saying is you cannot change. Okay, if that's true, then you have to go back up to verse 33 and say that that promise of the Holy Spirit is water. In order to stay in continuity of flow. He has not changed the subject and he has not brought up anything about getting into water in here, has he? The only time he did it was at the opening of chapter 1 where he makes a contrast saying, John baptized with water, but I'm telling you about something that's different. It's a baptism by the Holy Spirit. Then why does it have, okay, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, okay, let's... Okay, so this is where your list, your list making is really important. Okay, so let's look at this. He says to them, oh, let me put it over here so you guys can see it better. He says to them to do one thing. He says, repent, right? Repent, and each of you be baptized. How are you baptized? In the name of... Of Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll get it all for forgiveness. You guys are making me write it all out. Forgiveness of your sin. No, it isn't. Okay, but do you see the word that follows it? Verse 39 is a conjunction. So what is the... Two sentences together. The word for follows 38. Do you see it? For, what's going to happen? The prom- what promise? Ah, the promise, that's the Holy Spirit, is for, is for who? It, 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 yes, okay. All right. Let me go back to my my book here. I just couldn't write. You don't want to write every single word down. What you're trying to do is make your list making show you the bullet points, right? So if you already know you're talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? He says, repent, and each of you be baptized. What has been the subject flow up to this point? The promise, the Holy Spirit, that you're being filled with the Spirit. It hasn't changed. Subject matter has not changed. Now he says, repent and be baptized. Be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and as many as... 
the Lord our God will call to himself. I'm going to... 39. It looks... It is one of those things that is, is happening right. Now, let's make another list to, to actually help you clarify a little bit more. Let's just ask some questions and do an analytical kind of a list on this. Let's ask this the question. The, um, let's do it this, this way. The Holy Spirit is the promise. That's our, our declarative statement, right? That's what the promise is. That's, uh, that's in one four and five. Okay. So how do you receive the Holy Spirit according to what we've just looked at? Okay. By the name, this pen is not working. I'm going to switch. Let's try this one. Okay. It's by the name of Jesus Christ. So these are, are going to be what I call doctrines of truth about salvation. This is going to be super important. If, if you're a person who's an evangelist, you need to clarify these kinds of points in your mind to the extent that then later, no matter from what angle you, people come at it uh, uh, with you at, you're able to explain to them how salvation is attained. If salvation is attained through water baptism, then you're talking about works. And this is not talking about that. The subject has not changed. To, they have, in no way has he said, go get to the river and water baptize someone. That subject has not come up. Although we're going to see it demonstrated later, he actually makes a contrast when he opens the subject of the promise of the Holy Spirit. The contrast is, John baptized with water, but me, I'm a new covenant. I baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's how you get saved. Okay, and then he goes on to say, number one, by the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And then you are baptized. Because you're, ba- because you're forgiven in the name of Jesus, you are baptized with the promise. Right? Is that, am I correct on that? Okay, that's one point that you can draw as a conclusion out of what we're looking at. That by the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of your sins, and therefore, and then you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's a doctrine. Is everyone in agreement with that? And do we see that here? That, that that's how you're going? Do you think that if somebody gets dunked in water, that they are going to be forgiven of their sins? Yeah. Do you think that without the filling of the Holy Spirit, that someone is saved? Yeah. Without... Okay, but these people right here are hearing the message from Peter, and Peter is giving them the truth about who Jesus is. Right. I know, but I'm just saying is that there is a period of time in there where people are saved that didn't have the Holy Spirit. The ones that were in the upper room that didn't have the Holy Right. And now they are the witnesses who are going to proclaim that. So you're right. The ones that are on the outside and haven't yet heard that certainly are still safe in their, their understanding from the Old Testament law. But those whom these people are having this interaction with right here, start, we are in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. 
Anyone who's in the realm of hearing that it's in no other name is any man saved but through the name of Jesus, how must they be saved? What must they believe on? Jesus as that Christ. We're going to look here in just a second in chapters 3 and 4 how they keep using the name of Jesus to give the identifying markers of that which was promised, which is the covenant the new, of the new covenant, and that it's the seed that was fulfilled. It is the Christ, the Messiah that they have been looking for. That's why Kay had us this week look so closely at all these different names. He is called the author of life. Well, what, what is he identifying in that statement that he's the author of life or the prince of life? He is God himself. He is God come in flesh. And so what I'm saying to you is, yes, Craig, I understand what you're saying. Yes, we're in an interim. But right here, these people, they are now accountable. And that's what's being taught here is this, do- this new doctrine. This is how we're still saved today. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Water baptism does not save anybody. And it didn't then either. Exactly. It was only a pledge of a good conscience toward God. It's a sacrament. It's a sacrament. Very good. I love this. You guys, we're going to get this, these doctrines down really good before we get through Acts. Yeah. And in fact, when, when, when we're at church, I'm finding that the pastor is now saying, this is a commitment. Yes, yes, yes. They really separate out that this is not saving. That's right. It used to be, when I was a little girl growing up in my Baptist church, you know, they didn't make that really clear. It was all about, you've got to get baptized to be saved, right? So I would walk an aisle, you'd get baptized, which I did at the age of nine. But I don't believe I got saved at the age of nine. I don't think I got saved until I became an adult. When I saw a pickling in my life, when my life was transformed and I became wholly committed to God, and there was a transformation of my thinking and who I was committed to and what I was on fire about, that's when I know I became saved. Now, that was kind of a scary thing to confess because then that mean, meant, well, you know, when I first started thinking about it and I was real young still in my faith, I thought, well, golly, Lord, what if I had died between 9 and 21 when I got, really did get saved? And here's what I, I now know. God is sovereign. He knew. He knows the end from the beginning, and he preserved my life until I came to that fruition of knowledge where I bowed my knee to him. And that is true for everyone. He knows. At that time, you knew as much as you accepted. And I believed as much as I knew. That's right. That's right. But at that age, I was not fully committed to God. I simply was saying, uh, my, my, well, I'll tell you the truth of it. My brother walked the aisle, and I thought, I can't let my brother show me up. I got to go too, you know? And, and my brother actually said to my mother, what's wrong with Katie? When is she going to, to trust in Jesus? And so I, it was kind of a challenge from the brother, the sibling thing, more than it was about my relationship with Jesus at that time, because I was a young child. But yes, you're right. It was still a building block, Margaret, and therefore it's fine. If, if you have young children who have ba- been baptized, let them. It's still a progress of journey. But at some point, you have to see a transformation of their life or... They're not saved, right? Okay, so by the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of sins, and then you are baptized with the holy, uh, the holy, with the um, with the promise. And the promise is 
the Holy Spirit, okay? That's what we have established uh, in this chapter. That's what the subject matter is. That's what the doctrine has taught. It's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit for salvation. Are you guys getting there yet? Okay, so now number... No, oh, okay, sorry, Susan. I'm not going to argue with your conclusion. Okay. It's not as cl- okay. Oh, you are absolutely right, Susan, and that is exactly why we're doing what we're doing right now. Because what I knew when I looked at that, I struggled with it too. And what I had to do was fall back on my inductive Bible study processes. Number one, what is the context and context rules for interpretation? What is the subject that's being taught here so far? It's baptism of what? the Holy Spirit. Is it about water baptism? Have we had any discussion about water baptism thus far? You would be inferring a brand new subject if you start talking about the sacrament of water baptism here. You're in, you're in, you're, yes, you are introducing a new subject that has not been identified, has not been discussed, has not been explained, has not been even required of you. It would be you're dropping in something totally new. So you're actually violating your known doctrines and you're violating your author's purpose. The author's purpose at this moment is teaching us about baptism of the Holy Spirit and how you get that baptism of the Holy Spirit. These are essential doctrines for you and I as believers. And I do think that, that people who want to say, right here, this is water baptism, you start murking the water for people's understanding. If you can clearly and definitively say, no, you don't get the Holy Spirit, you don't get the promise by being water baptized. You get the Holy Spirit. And what he says after, after that is, on that day, what was added? 3,000 3, souls. It's talking about the transformation of the soul here. The effect that this baptism has was on the soul. Do you suppose that if it was just 3,000 people that got wet, that among them there might be some who did not have that transformation of the Holy Spirit? Sure. And that that subject has not been brought up. Number two, um, who else gets baptized with the promise according to 39? Okay, so those who are called by God, and what must they do when they're called by God? What does it say in that verse about repentance? Does it not say something about repentance? Yeah, repent. So they are called by God. They repent. How do you know if you're being called by God? There's a repentance in your heart about recognizing your need of God, and your sinful state. So without repentance, there has been no call. Okay? So you, to be called by God, although God calls all people to himself. But, but you know what's really interesting to me is also there's a verse there that says that God desires that all men be saved. And if it relied on God, then would all men be saved? Absolutely. So there is a balance here in this, this thing called salvation. It's, it's a two-sided coin. One can't be there without the other. There is free will choice, and there is God's plan. And in Ephesians chapter 1, he very clearly says to us, what is his plan? How does he predetermine you into salvation? What is the predetermined plan of God? Even here it t- said it too. Jesus himself. 
Jesus is the predetermined plan. So if you are predetermined, if you are destined for salvation, you are destined through the plan, and the plan is Jesus. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 teaches. So those who are called by God, they repent. And then what happens after that? They are baptized with the promise. Not with water, but they are baptized with the promise. Okay, so that's in 39. Now, um, what does it say then happened uh, in 41? Okay, so who gets the, the, the baptism then there? Those who do what? Those who receive the word. And in this case, it was Peter's word. And what was Peter's word about? About Jesus. So it's those who receive the word about Jesus, who he is, what he did, how God resurrected him, that it is in no other name but through Jesus that men will be saved. So he's saying it's about Jesus. So they must, number three, how do you get this baptism? The Holy Spirit is the promise. And how do you get it? Those who receive the word. And that's about Jesus. We're then baptized. So in what I hit, what I did in this forty one, and then it goes on, it says, and about three thousand, I love this, three thousand souls were added. About. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, this is one thing that, that with inductive Bible study, we always have to remember. You don't get all the pieces to, to every puzzle all in one place. You get a little here and a little there, and then together what you want to do when you bring it together is don't violate what you know is true, right? And, and then you remember the two rules. Number one, immediate context rules for interpretation, so in this case, you ha- if you follow that rule, what is the baptism that's being spoke of in chapters 1 and 2? Holy Spirit baptism. Number two, do not violate your known doctrine. So if you switch this to being baptized as being water, by the name of Jesus Christ you are forgiven, and then you're baptized with water, then what you have said then is that water has something to do with it. That the act of you getting wet has something to do with whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. And that's where we get these wrong doctrines taught and people start getting confused, right? I had one person, uh, in, you know, you, you all know I used to work as a corporate chaplain and I remember one person came to me and had talked to me about whether or not they w- would be baptized or whether they need to be baptized again, right? Because they had been baptized once before. And in that course of that conversation, I came to realize I was confused. I wasn't sure about the requirement of that. Now, when you take, it, take away the subject of baptism, and let's go into other kinds of things like circumcision, which comes up later for us. They start arguing about that ritual as well. Do you think it, that, what, that from what you can recall, is there a requirement by any of these new converts to adhere to old Judaistic practices of circumcision or other kinds of ceremonial 
things? And the answer is no. The food, the, yeah, there was a debate and they had to clarify. So here's what you now know from that statement that you just made. What are we seeing in the book of Acts? Doctrines are being established for us to understand what the new covenant is about. And we can look at it as a contrast to the old covenant. He actually almost says that right from the beginning. With John, you did this. But now, with me, the new covenant, you do this. So he's establishing new principles, new doctrines of understanding of how they operate as a congregation of new believers in this new thing called Christianity and the church. And so this one, the reason I, you can see now why I wanted to go back and cover this with you, because this one is, is tougher if you don't hold to those rules, inductive rules. So the, thank you, Jesus, for precept ministries teaching in my life. Because, because of the rules, if you are willing to let go of your personal, oh, but I think it means this, it sure sounds like that. Well, yeah, maybe so, but what's been taught? What does the context say? That's what you have to hold fast to and say, okay, well, in that case, yeah, they are talking about the baptism of the Spirit, not water. Yes? Well, there you go. Okay, so they'd have to have a line of six people being baptized at a time. Yeah, right. Now, in, yeah, well, first of all, we actually, some of the commentaries actually did, did go into, did some of you guys research that a little bit and say, what, you know, where some people were saying, well, baptism, and did you see the arguments that were going back and forth about whether it was water or whether it was the Spirit? Did anybody of you guys read on that? Really? You guys aren't that interested? Oh, my gosh. I was like, eat up with it. Okay. And I was sicker than a dog, and I was reading. <laughs> okay. Um, there were many debates, if you go back and look at your commentaries on this. And I'm actually kind of proud of you guys for not doing the commentaries, because what you're doing, therefore, is disciplining yourself to say, I want to see what I'm learning here first. Later, I can go back and read other people's views, and then I'll, I can expand or think about, or by the time I'm ready to read some of those things, I've already established some things that I'm, I'm certain of. Um, this is one of those plumb lines or pillars of how do you handle the scriptures that inductive Bible study is so valuable for. In this very moment, we are learning a, val a valuable tool, your immediate context rules for your interpretation. And if you violate that rule, then you have to start saying, okay, well, if that interpretation is water there, then I have to back up and look up every other one and say that, that potentially it could be water. Because you, if you're going to make it be water there for baptism, then it's got to be water in the other places too. There has to be continuity of teaching by this speaker. He can't switch from one subject to another without clarifying it. And he does not do that. He does not clarify, does not bring up that new subject of water baptism. Not yet. No, exactly. There's a violation of a known doctrine if you do that. So in this case, you don't get saved because you get water baptized. We know that. Right. Are you 
are you still saved? And, my, and what would your answer be? I haven't, okay, yes, the answer is yes. Now give me a, give me a scripture to validate it. Thank you very much, Susan. You just answered your own question. Awesome. The man who hung on the cross next to Jesus, he said to him, after he made his confession, what? Today you will be with me in paradise. Was he water baptized before he died? No. Of course, he was still under the old covenant. I get it. But he still received by faith the gospel message of the coming Messiah and that he believed Christ Jesus was that one. And by that belief, Jesus said to him, and do you think Jesus knew his heart? Yes. He said, today you should be with me in paradise. Yes. Well, I loved it. When I went back and started evaluating what was talking, so all I had to do with every one of them is is make sure I understood. This is true when when you go into 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about baptism of the dead, right? Right? that in that passage, if you don't add the word dead body, the physical body, you can mess that whole passage up. Same thing here. You need to add, every time you see the word baptized, baptized with what? The promise. And what is the promise? The promise is the Holy Spirit. So that's what we've established, that wh- what the Father promised, they heard it from Jesus also. And what was the promise? He is the Holy Spirit. So if that's what the promise is, it's the Holy Spirit, then every time you see the word baptized, they were baptized with what? With the promise. And what is the promise? The Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome, the way that works itself out, though? I mean, after you kind of work it through, it becomes logical to me. Now, if you're still struggling with it, that's fine. I don't, I don't expect everybody to just jump on board with me. I do know this, that often the further along we get, the more things become clear to us. Sometimes we do have challenges like that. And I can tell you in the book of Acts, there's going to be a bunch of these because this is a book that's all about new beginnings and about new things that are being set in place. So let's always adhere to what we know is going on. Follow the subject line Find out what is the author talking about. Identify your subject and then hold to it. Don't switch it. Don't, it's a switch and bait thing otherwise. Okay? So here we have, I believe, the Spirit speaking of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And then 3,000 souls were added that day. All right. Now, yay. That was, that was fun. Maybe not for you, but it was great fun for me. I love making sure that people learn these inductive processes, and that's a great demonstration of one. That's a challenge, and that can be a, a rub, rubbing spot. And you know, and my question would be, if you're going to make the error on this, and you're not sure whether it's water or the spirit, if you're going to make the error, who would you rather make the error in favor of, God or your works? I would rather go for God and say, well, I think it has to be the Holy Spirit. It might be, if it is water baptism, then God's going to have to show me that later and bring, bring us back to it. But in, until he shows me otherwise, I'm adhering to the rules and I'm not going to violate my known doctrine. Okay? Cool. I'm awesome. All right. Thank you. I'm so, I just feel so good on that. I just love that teaching. Okay. So now... Because those are the tough ones, and you've got to get through the tough ones. Okay, Acts chapter 3. Now, this is going to be pretty simple. At this point, what we're going to simply do is try to go through and look at the flow of thought, what's going on here, and, and maybe we can develop a little bit more later next week or something. But I really felt like I had to go back and cover that uh, Holy Spirit stuff that we did not, I would have done it 
last week, but I wasn't here. So, okay. Chapter three, get, just off the top of your head, give me some of your key words. What did you see for key words in chapter three? Just pop them out. I'm not going to write them down, but I just want to hear what you came up with for keywords in chapter 3. Okay, the name of Jesus. Okay. Actually, remember again, Jesus, God, and Holy Spirit are always key. So always have those marked as keywords. Okay. But the name of Jesus is very specific in this one because there's something specific that we need to understand about the name of Jesus and what we see... um, um, as the result of the name of Jesus, certain things are happening in this chapter that we want to distinguish. Okay, so the name of Jesus, the, guy. the lame man, okay, and some distinguishing markers were given to us about the lame man. What did you learn about him? He was how old? 40 years old. And how long had he been lame? From birth. And there, there are some other passages that, go, that talk about there's never been that. I remember in John chapter 9 about the blind man. It's never been that a man blind from birth has ever received their sight, that that was something supernatural. So here now we have the lame man also from birth, okay? What other keywords? The apostles, of course. Certainly mark those because we're following them. Um, one of the questions I had by my friend this week about, you know, what are some of these things? Some, she's just trying to learn the method and how to teach. And we were talking about um, segment divisions, which are going to pop up. You are going to begin to see segment divisions if you will keep marking your apostles in a distinctive way. Right now, so far, we've seen primarily Peter, but now we've also added John, right? So Peter and John. Geographical location is what? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. How do we know this? What are some other things that came up? The temple. temple. They're at the temple. So you now, so you know through the identifying geographical locations which you've marked, you're still in Jerusalem. Now, when you go back to Acts chapter one, verse eight, and he says, "And you'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Have we hit Judea and Samaria yet? No, we're still in Jerusalem." Isn't that kind of cool? So this could become a segment division for you on, uh, later when you start to do those segment divisions on your at-a-glance chart. Okay? All right, so we, we see geographical location is the, the temple. And what is the, the gate called? Beautiful. Isn't that interesting? Okay. What other mark, uh, keywords? Was that in Chapter 4, though? That's 4. Yeah. More in chapter four, I think, than three. But, okay. I love that. The word wonder and amazement. Why are those significant, do you think, in a a historical record? Yeah. It shows the response of the people to what they either saw or heard, correct? So it's showing you how, how profoundly they were influenced. Did you happen to do word studies on wonder or amazement? If you marked it as a keyword, you might would have wanted to clarify for yourself, you know, a little bit more about that word wonder and amazement and have done a word study on that, even though it wasn't in your homework, I know, but okay. All right. What else? 
prophet, the writings of the prophet. And there's a synonymous statement to the writings of the prophet. It's not just the word prophet, but it's the writings of the prophet that is significant here, correct? And what would be another way of, of, of that word being identified in here? Yes, announced beforehand. And what you know then is talking about the things that were written beforehand by the Old Testament prophets again, okay? Of the people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the Israelites. That's exactly right. So you would have wanted to mark uh, anything that goes regarding who these people were that were observing and present, okay? I found one in verse 16. It's only listed twice, but I think that there's a, a... Let's read this verse, verse 16. And on the basis of faith... In his name, Jesus' name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence that you all, uh, in the presence of you all. They're they're Southerners, y'all. Okay, now, (laughs) I I had to read that twice. Okay, um, it's the first time I noticed that, (laughs) y'all. it, key words, generally a key word is something which is repeated a lot, correct? Right. However, there's another way that a word can become key, and that is if a word is removed from the text, it leaves the text devoid of either meaning or a full understanding. If we removed the, the uh, statement about faith from this text, would that have a profound impact on the understanding of everything that we're looking at here? Absolutely. Because it is by faith that the, in the name of Jesus that this man is healed, right? So the whole first part of the chapter about his getting healed, although it never says he believed and it never says he had faith, later it's quantified or validated that that is how he received that healing was by his faith. And therefore, if you remove that word, and it's only mentioned twice in one verse, but if you remove it from the text, it becomes devoid of great meaning. A great deal of understanding is removed. Yes. Yes, he did. Okay, what what you're hearing is a um, a historical record, and and not the not all the stories given. Do you remember when you would read the Gospels? How you read in one story about the account, and then in the next Gospel you read the another account, and they add in more pieces. Okay, do you are you seeing what I'm saying? That I believe is going to be true in this account, and the reason I can I can so. Uh, strongly say I believe that that's true is because they tell you in the next verse it's by faith on the name of Jesus that made him healed so he obviously got the rest he says um, I don't have riches but what I do have I give to you and apparently he must have told him what he had before he said then in the name of Jesus stand and walk he must have told him that it's Jesus that was the Christ that he came Exactly. That's exactly, that's a good way to look at it, James. It's probably the conclusion of the fact that he had, when approached, that he saw the man begging for alms, but the rest of the story is not in there. If there was an Acts uh, a companion book, we'd have probably gotten more of the story. Did you notice when we compared Luke, the, uh, particularly even the closing of the chapter of Luke, with Acts and the opening of it, 
that also more of the story is back in Luke when we went back to Luke. But not all of it is in opening of Acts. Acts just gives the highlights of them uh, having Jesus appearing to them, the things that he did. They actually gave us one tidbit of additional insight in Acts chapter 1 where it said that over a period of 40 days he presented himself alive. Well, that was not told to us in Luke, but Luke goes on to give more information about how he presented himself alive, showing himself to the different apostles, the road to Emmaus, all these different things were in that book, right? So not a whole story is there. So that is probably the best way to always see that because what we know for sure is he tells us in verse 16 that it was his faith in Jesus that saved him. So even though he didn't tell us the full story in the opening, we know that it happened, that the the whole story was given to the man. Does that help? Yes. Okay, good. All right, so the word faith is a key word, mark it. And what else? Any others? Praise, okay. I love that one. Oh, raised, raised up from there. And the word praise is also in there, so that's another good one. But yes, raised, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, it's not, although it's a profound doctrinal truth about who Jesus is, and we're going to get into that when we make our list on Jesus, um, in this account, the fact that he was raised is not totally as emphasized. So if you didn't mark it, it's okay. But she is correct. The word raise is certainly a significant point in um, the doctrine of Jesus and who he is and and the fact that he was raised from the dead is profoundly important, right? And and it actually comes into play when we start talking about these other people in chapter 4 who are called the Sadducees. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they come out and they raise somebody. That's what they do. In a way, you're right. And yes. They raised him up to his feet, right? The contrast to that is the very end of this chapter, they repeat very clearly what God has done. Mm-hmm. And there is a contrast between what they did and what God has yeah. done. Yeah. Or a parallel, sort of. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Just like when we talk about any time we get into a book, the first thing that they do is. Right. Yes, exactly. You're absolutely right. Or the first mention of, of a doctrine or a truth in Scripture is always its most clearly defined understanding. We could actually say about the church, everything you want to know about our church and about what it's based on, what the, which is why this is, was so important about the idea of being baptized with the Spirit, not with water, as being the profound thing which, which uh, gives you your salvation, um, is that here we're seeing the, the, the first doctrines about our, the church, about what the church is founded on, what the church is, is built up to be, what our role is in this world as God's body of Christ, this new thing. So all of this is the first inference or the first is, uh, teachings on it. Now, I marked, announced, and spoke. Yes. And those are, that's what we just said a minute ago. We talked about writings of the prophets announced beforehand. Okay, now, and if you, when you mark them, how did you mark those, by the way? The writings of the prophet and what was announced beforehand. There you go, Martha. Like the Word of God. Or you could use a symbol like the Old Testament, um, um, what do you call it? The law, the tablets. Yeah, I mean, you could mark it. You could have marked the, the writings. Oops, that dried out. These, they dry out because I'm talking. <laughs> talking too much. Okay. 
Yeah. I've got tons of markers, but I've got tons of them in here. I just threw them down there because they're not writing. Thank you. Yeah, I guess so. I'm not sure if they're drying out because I'm holding them and they're being open to the air or if there's another reason. I don't know. Let's see. Okay, so you could do that or you could do that for the writings. Okay, the writings of the prophets. So that those would be marked, either a tablet or a, or a book of some kind that would indicate to you the scriptures. Okay? So that's another little inductive clue. Okay, so now let's do this. Let's move on. And very quickly, let's then come up with a theme. We see then that the, the primary subject in here is who? Who's the, the major subject? The healing of the lame man, right? That's what the catalyst is. From there, then, what does Peter end up doing and spending all the rest of the time talking about? Jesus himself. He gives a testimony, just as it says in Acts 1. He becomes a powerful witness, right, of, the, of uh, Jesus himself. So let's go through and title this, the theme. What is your theme for Acts chapter 3? How did you title it? And there's a variety of ways of saying it, and we're probably all going to say the same thing, but just give me your titles. Go ahead. A man raised up. Okay. Anything else? And that's good. I think I added, like, lame man healed and Peter Jesus. There you go. Okay. I, that's okay. So lame man, what did you say, raised up? Healed. And healed is a word not used in there, but the implication is there. So I think it's, you could say walked, right? Layman walked. Uh, and the, well, yeah, it, ultimately what we end up with is the fact that why was he able to walk? Because he was saved. So what was, you tell me this, then what was the purpose of healing him? Could God have saved him without making him walk? Okay, so in this record, obviously, there's an, a, a, something significant and important about the fact that Jesus wanted to, to, or God, wanted to record in the word that there was something supernatural that accompanied this. Why, why is that? What did we see in chapter 2? There you go. Because the, the Jewish people understood at a fundamental level that when there were supernatural things going on, that it was God that was with them. Okay? And so in this case, the layman being uh, um, healed and able to walk was a sign that what concerning what Peter was saying? That everything he was saying was true. And what did Peter say about how the man was healed? In the name of Jesus, it is by this name this man is strengthened and healed. So the layman was healed, and Peter um, uh, proclaimed. And Peter was real quick in verse 12 to let him know. As a matter of fact, that's what I said. Now, let's look at 1 to, one to 10, then, is about that layman, right? He says, Peter, I put on here, Peter offers. Um, Jesus, to the man, obviously, right? And the lame man believes. And we find that out later, but we know that he believes, and because he believes, he walks, 
right? So I just put that as verse 6, but verses 1 to 10 is our first paragraph. And in there, we see that, that the lame man is healed because Peter has offered him Jesus, and he believed it, right? Okay, so when you get then to starting in 11 all the way to the end, he makes this very significant switch in his focus of attention. It's kind of like he tells you about the healing just so that he can tell you all about these other things about Jesus. It's like it is, again, a bait and switch almost, but his bait and switch was so that you get your focus on Jesus and off of what? The healing and off Peter, right. Off of Peter and what Peter did. And Peter says, by the way, don't think that it's anything in us, right? He makes that statement. I think it was at this one, right? There, um, in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Um, in chapter 3, though, I'm, I'm in the wrong one, I'm sorry. In chapter 3, he says, but Peter saw this. He replied to the people, men of Israel, because they had been looking at him. When they saw this, they were amazed at what had happened with this layman. It, wouldn't you be? If, if all of a sudden, you know, somebody that you know had been lame from birth got up and started walking, we'd all be, flo- our jaws would be on the floor. And that's what these people were. They were totally amazed. And uh, he said, well, why do you gaze at us? As if what you see is our own power or piety that we made him walk. Right? He says, so it is no, so then he makes the switch. So now he switches subjects. I'm going to make a note on here. is now the focus becomes Jesus. So in, let's do this now. Let's go through and title each of these segments. And Kay asked you to do it. She actually gave you the the divisions of the verses in your homework, right? Where she said, look at these verses and tell me what you see. Give me bullet points. Well, actually what she was doing was helping you title paragraph segments. And what she wanted you to do was title them according to what we profoundly learn about who Jesus is from what he's declaring. So what does he say in 11 to 16? What does he say that they did? Yeah, yeah, you put him to death. You put to death who? How was he identified? The holy and righteous one, correct? That was the first one. And the prince of life. So very interesting. You put to death, and he gives them two things. One, uh, the, the um, righteous and holy one. I did it backwards. Sorry. Number two, the prince of life. And then, and then that is, again, contrasted. And what is there a contrast in there? And what did God do in response to that? God raised him, right? He raised him. Now, number 17 to 18, he's, then what do we see about this Jesus? What's profoundly proclaimed to us about who he is? What title is he given there? The Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And then he quantifies that by saying, he's not only is he the Christ, he's the Christ that who? 
Um, well, in verse 18, I, th I think it was 17 and 18. Yes. He says that God had announced. He is the Christ that had been announced beforehand. So what he's trying to do with them is what? With these religious leaders. He's actually bringing up to them what they're supposed to already know, right? Do you remember when Jesus is uh, pr presented through the Gospels that everywhere he went as he went, he would in some way or another basically proclaim, I am he, I am he, I am he, right? I am the Christ, I am your king, I am the servant of God, whatever, however he is presented in whichever of the Gospels you're reading. But he keeps saying, I am he, the one who was prophesied. And so here, this is the very first thing that Peter does. He says, you put to death this, the one who is the prince of life. In other words, he is God. You put him to death and he is the righteous and holy one. Did he deserve death? Righteous and holy one did not deserve death. And therefore, and then it shows that God then raised him. He said, but Jesus is also called the Christ. Jesus is the Christ announced beforehand. And what I think is interesting about this is that he is really kind of calling them on the carpet. They're supposed to know this. This is stuff they should have recognized about him. As Jesus was presented in the book of Matthew, when we did our Matthew study, you remember as we went through there, we kept saying how um, he would say, well, he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. And everyone then was followed with, as was recorded in the, in the scripture, uh, things like he, he, he came from Nazareth, he was uh, of the tribe of Judah, and he was of the, the lineage of David, and he was born in Bethlehem, he went down to Egypt. He, I mean, all those things that we learn when we first enter into the book of, of Matthew, it shows Jesus showing them over and over and over how he fulfills Scripture. So here, that's kind of what he's doing here. He's saying he is the Christ that was announced beforehand. And then what does he say about... In 19 to 21. Now, this one was really cool. I thought. Repent and return. What does he tell us about Jesus, though? Now, that's what he wants them to do. What does he tell us about Jesus here? What's the doctrine? He is, about, he is the Christ that's been appointed for you. Now, what is that talking about? So I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. What, what, it talks about a time until the time of restoration of all things, right? What does it say in Acts 1 6? We've already had this introduced to us. Restoring the uh, it's talking about the restoring of the kingdom. So if it's the Christ that's appointed for you, and what does he tell us about the Christ that's been appointed for them? Where is he right now at this time? In He's in heaven. He, why do you think that's important for them to understand that the Christ who's appointed for them to be their king, to restore to them what's going to be restored to them? The land, the, the kingdom, right? That, Jesus, that their Christ would come to be their king. That's what they're looking forward to. He's saying, but right now, until he does that, where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. He is in heaven until that time of restoration. Now, the fact that he says until that time, what does that tell us about the sovereignty of God over, you know, the timing of these things? Does it indicate to you, th do you think, 
Those men that were listening to Peter's preaching, do you think that indicated to them that God is sovereign over the timing of certain things? Did it also for them clarify, um, maybe, or at least hopefully it did, the fact that they missed that Jesus' coming is a (coughs) two-parter? Do you think that in any way they went, oh yeah, well, if he's really the Christ, why isn't he ruling? No, these are the... True. I'm sorry, I'm choking. <coughs> when he gathered his apostles, did they know about the restoration of the kingdom to come? And are the apostles part of the Sanhedrin and the counselors and the leaders and the rulers? No. Most of them were what kind of people? Right. They were the common people, uneducated. Later we see that they're actually uneducated. Okay, but the people, although they were uneducated, do you think they did not know about the coming restoration of the kingdom? They did. So this is why I think, so he's saying to them, look, you know about the coming restoration of the kingdom. And their question might have been, well, if this is the Christ, right, we said that, he is the Christ that was announced beforehand, the first question in their mind would be, then why isn't he ruling? Where's our kingdom? Where's our restoration? Right? So can you see the order of how he's even approaching how he introduces Jesus to them is to clarify to them, first and foremost, why isn't Jesus here ruling? If this Christ is here, why did, where is he gone? And where is he? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, exactly. And there's another good example of the masses understood the king, the Christ to come was to be their king. I'm so sorry, you guys. I'm just having a moment. It'll it'll go. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, that would be good. Thank you, dear. My hero. Now you're going to hear me smacking on the phone, on the microphone. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to put on here then that Jesus, what's told to us in this focus on Jesus, Jesus is the Christ that was announced beforehand, and Jesus is in heaven until the restoration of all things. And this restoration of all things is speaking about him coming as king. It's what's referred to back in Acts uh, 1.6 about the fact that he says, well, is it at this time that you are coming to restore the kingdom? And he's saying, no. Until the restoring of the kingdom, Jesus is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father until that time is a, that is appointed comes. Okay, so then we go to 22 to 24, and what do we see there? 
there's a warning in this one, isn't there? How is he identified there? He's a prophet. He's a prophet like who? Like Moses. And then he makes a reference to a scripture where the scripture says that Moses says, when that one comes, he will be a prophet like me, a prophet. But that prophet, there's going to be something distinguished about him. What's that? You better be heeding him because if you don't heed him, what happens? I love this part. You will be cut off from your people. Now, the Jews understood that one fully well. Now, for those of us who just came out of Ezekiel and have done some of these Old Testament studies like we did in Leviticus, we understand the importance of them being cut off from their people and not being uh, allowed to participate in the blessings of the land, right? And the blessings of that kingdom that is to come. And this is actually a follow-on almost to the previous subject where he says the restoration of the kingdom, he said, until that comes, Jesus is at the right hand. And he says, and by the way, he is the prophet that you better be heeding. And if you don't, you're going to be cut off. Cut off from what? That kingdom that's going to be restored. Isn't that interesting? So in 22 to 24, it's um, Jesus is a prophet you must heed. And you can go on and say, or you'll be cut off. You'll be, be destroyed from your people. And so then in 25 and 26, what does he say about Jesus? What is he called in there? The servant, right? Did y'all see it? He's referred to as the servant, and the seed, okay? So, and because he's the seed, he is the servant that's to come. And that seed who comes is going to do what for them? He's going to bless them. That's right. And don't you know that the, the, the Jewish people throughout all of their history, that's what it was all about, the blessing, the blessing, the blessing. Because under the old covenant, if you obeyed God, what? You would be blessed. And if you disobeyed? You would be cursed. Is that not what he just said here in 22 to 24, that Jesus is a prophet you must heed, and if you don't, you'll be cut off? And now he says in 25 and 26, God has raised up a servant to bless you, the seed to bless you. You can call it the servant or the seed, either one. I like the seed, though. Uh, God raised up. His servant, and I'll just put in parentheses, the seed, the seed that was promised, right? To do what? To bless you. And then, therefore, what must you do? You must turn. That's right. You must turn. From your wicked ways. I don't have room to put the whole thing up here, so that's sufficient for right now. Okay, so this is the outline then of this book, or of this chapter 3. The layman is healed and walks, and then Peter proclaims Jesus. We see the majority of this chapter is on who? Jesus. And it tells us some really profound things. And that's where Kay had you go in and do all your cross-references on 
What did you learn about who the servant is? Who is the prince of life? Who, you know, in scripture, what did they know through their old prophets, through Isaiah and through Moses' writing, through David's writings in the Psalms about who he is? Margaret. I think that verse 16 would be the main verse of the whole chapter. Of chapter um, 3. I love it. I absolutely love that one. It's a perfect. That's, that's how he ties in the miracle. With and the with the let you're absolutely right. Boy, you did a good job on that, Margaret. Yoo-hoo! Did you hear what she said? How she validated verse 16? Verse 16 ties in the introduction, which is the lame man. And it ties in with the name of Jesus. And then throughout all of the rest of the book, he presents to us the names of Jesus. And then what you can do inductively then is go to that next level and study all those names of Jesus. What did they, what are they to either recall or learn or be made known to them about Jesus? In this case, he says he's the, he was put to death. You put him to death, by the way, but God raised him up. Jesus is the Christ that was announced before beforehand. Jesus is in heaven until the restoration of all things. Jesus is a prophet that you must heed or you're going to be cut off. God raised up his servant, the seed, to bless you. You must turn from your wicked ways. Cool. Good time. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he really does. Okay, we've got just like five minutes. I don't have a lot of time to cover this chapter four. Uh, so I'm going to send you the outline as far as the 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 chapter paragraph uh, titles. What I want to do, though, is take a couple of minutes and then go in and see about how they witness, because this part's going to be real practical to you and I who are witnessing um, today. He, the, the first thing I want you to see there is how bold he is. In verse 10, what do you see in chapter 4, verse 10? What do you see he opens that verse with? Let it be known to all. Did anybody see that and actually do some word study or, or commentary work on that? That little phrase about let it be known, it's almost like a proclamation. So I actually marked it just like the word therefore or for this reason because it was something that was kind of um, a highlighted statement that says, you, you know, I'm saying something really important. This is a declaration. And he says, look, let it be known to all of you, right? So he makes this declaration. So what did he let them know? What was his bold declaration there? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the very first thing he really does to them is declare to them that they crucified the... the, the Yes, he does. He says, look, you guys sinned here, right? Which is why he says you must turn from your wicked ways. Because obviously, before the cross... They missed the fact or they rejected the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And so here he's saying, now you must turn from your wicked ways. He, he, you go into Acts chapter 4. Who do we see presented right off is all these 
high officials, the rulers of the, of the people who should know. Now we're talking what, what you were trying to contrast earlier, the, the general population to now. These are the spiritual leaders. They're the ones really educated in the law and should know better, right? These are the ones that stirred up the, the common people. Mm-hmm. When you did your contrasts in verses 1 to 4, what did you contrast there? Okay, well, that would definitely be a good one, too. Yes. Yes. Another's believe. That's right. Because one of the things that Kay wanted you to know, and I think she makes mention of it in our homework, she says, remember, there are no uh, chapter divisions in the written word of God, right? So chapter 3 and 4 are obviously a flow together of one story presentation. There's a break in there by chapter division, but not in thought. And so what we're seeing in verses 1 to 4 is the response. Peter does all this. This, by the way, to the rulers who are obviously hearing it also, along with the masses of the people. The people, it says, many of them believed. But what did the rulers do? They are disturbed. I love that word, disturbed. Did anybody do a word study on disturbed? I did. One of the things that... One of the words was irked. They were irked. So that was one of my titles for my paragraph. They were irked. <laughs> because I just thought, it, you know, it, the Jewish leaders opposed the apostles, and then the apostles are testifying with great power. But the rulers were irked, and, but many of the people actually believed. And I just thought that was really interesting. Um, when you're thinking about testifying uh, or being a witness uh, what were some other things that you saw Peter doing that you might want to apply when you're witnessing? Being bold. Being bold. Okay, we've already said that. That was the first thing. Let it be known. And he makes some declarations. And he does get bold because it gets right in their face. And the first thing he does is point out their sin. Okay? So pointing out their sin right off the bat. That would be an important factor in giving a testimony. You have to. I remember years and years ago, but there was a gal in my in my neighborhood on the little cul-de-sac at the end, and I had had tea with her one day. We were talking about our children, and the subject of sin came up, and, and I had said basically something about my kids, you know, those little sinners. And she said, well, my little Lisa, she's, she's not a sinner. She's just an innocent child. <laughs> so they're open for the conversation. Right away what I understood is she does not understand that we are born into sin by the, by the fact that we're human beings through Adam that is judicially placed on us. It's a judicial law of God that he established right away in the garden that through Adam all have sinned. And so the first thing Peter does is makes a declaration, you guys crucified the Christ, you're sinners, and you must repent and turn from that wickedness. Yes, he sure is. Okay. So that's another one. That's another part of it is, yes, you are a sinner, but what does he do? Offers them a way out. And also really, I think, encourages them by saying to them, you know, 
I know that you did it. And later, I think it was it somewhere in here, he says, you did it in ignorance. 17. Yeah. He even gives them an out, sort of. You know, it, I understand it was done in ignorance, but, right? Yeah. I love that, too. Yes. So who was guiding Peter then as he proclaimed to them, you guys are sinners and you need to repent? The Holy Spirit. So is it wrong for us to confront somebody when we see them in sin as believers? And is it wrong for us to confront unbelievers of their sin? No, because Peter did it. We see it here. Now, obviously, the important factor would be, are you being led by the Spirit and doing it in such a way that you know it's the Lord and you're not just being mean, right? What is your intent? Okay, so one of the things, how did they witness? They made these bold declarations of truth. What was something else they did? They offered opportunity for, for restitution or, re, or relationship with Jesus, right? What else do you see? I love that. I love that too. So he used the authority found in the names of Jesus as his, as his power. And you're right. And he says, look, it's not power in anything that we've done. It's Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus that he was healed. No, that wasn't him. Very good. He uses scripture and he, that, and he uses the, the scriptures to, to qualify or to validate that either Jesus is who he said he is because they're seeing him, him fulfill it. Or even in one case, he says, you are the builders that have rejected and Jesus is the stone. So he quotes an old familiar verse and he gives each of them an identifying marker. Jesus is that stone who, by the way, then God made a capstone. You rejected him, however. Right? So he uses scripture. It's awesome. Can't you imagine how they felt? And here are these fishermen here. You know, they're Galilean fishermen. And they're quoting scriptures to these learned guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably, you know, got the sights off. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Diane. That was exactly yeah. what I to say. Uh, Peter was an untrained, uneducated yeah. fisherman. And he's preaching this. Okay. So there you go, Diane. Go preach, girl. You're un... I mean, we, don't we all feel that way? I feel like I'm untrained and unqualified to actually go out and preach the gospel. And, and yet, God does not call the ones who are well-educated and trained. He calls the common fishermen and the common uh, carpenter. He himself was the carpenter. Of course, he was God, too, which was a great advantage. But... <laughs> <laughs> Five thousand. But then the rulers, the, the elders and the rulers and the priests respond to these apostles. With rejection. Okay, so there's another, there's another witnessing principle that we're learning then in here. Will everyone that you proclaim the truth to, the gospel truth to, will they all receive it? Actually, often the ones who are the most, quote, educated or learned maybe i don't even i don't even want to say education is not the issue it's more about the attitude of their heart and where where, where they 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 think their need is or lack of need is that i don't need 
that Jesus, or you put your faith on something that's fictitious. I mean, they just kind of belittle the things that you're believing. So not everyone will believe or receive what you are trying to present. And that's a good thing to know. As a matter of fact, when Jesus presented the gospel, did everyone come into faith that he presented to? They, they put him to, to the cross. Yes. That's scary. Because they were at the council. Yeah. They accused them. And I think that that in and of itself is something to note that they were supposed to be intimidated. That was the point. Oh, sure. Sure. Have you guys ever been in a situation like that where you feel like you've been surrounded and you're being intimidated? Boy, I have. I can remember places. And usually it was people who, when we were in the military, these were, in my life, would have been the wives of the generals and the colonels and the, you know, whatever. And depending on how far down the ranks I was in those earlier years, those women had the power, right? And so if you had anything to say about anything Christian-y, you know, then you would be literally surrounded and beaten into submission to basically shut up or abandon your, your, your statement in some way. So you had to make a choice. When Peter and them were were put in that position and they were surrounded and they were told to stop preaching, what did they reply with? Yeah, who are we supposed to obey? You be the decider on this. It wasn't that a clever way of doing that. Well, there is a lot more we can learn on this about the witnessing and um, so forth. And I'm sorry we didn't get through all of the outline on chapter 4, but I think we had a great discussion today about about the inductive process and how things were started there. Thank you. Thank you very much, you guys.